Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader. And we're doing another blue-collar Bible scholar study today. We are in the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, it is the second book of the New Testament. And uh, it's a pretty good one. Uh, We'll just jump right into the history of it. Mark is written by Mark. Because I'm not a godless atheist claiming to be a Bible scholar. The book of Mark is unanimous in the early church tradition. We're talking like 200, 300. You know, we're still still less than two generations, three generations from Jesus. At most! The last apostle dies in 96 AD. Oh, I should have taken that other lane. The last apostle dies in 96 AD. It's Apostle John who wrote the book of John. So you've got some of these early church guys coming along writing in 100, born, you know, six years after, four years after the book of Revelation was written. There's, uh, there's, there's not a lot of gap, especially considering when, you know, all the information we have about Caesar was written three to five hundred years at best after he was alive, near as we can figure. Uh, New Testament's pretty pretty solid in that front. <clears throat> so the Gospel of Mark, best we can figure, was written probably 45 to 55 A.D. After the death is the shorthand in English. It actually stands for Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, in Latin. Referring to the reign of Christ, because he is on the throne right now. Awesome stuff. So, the book is written by Mark, who is a companion of Peter at the time. Our best guess, it's one of, uh, Peter, Peter makes a visit to Rome, according to church tradition, at around 40, 45-ish. Then he makes a second visit to Rome in, like, uh, 49 or 50-ish. And that's the one that he's finally martyred at. Is all according to church tradition. I'm going to do one of these on just early church fathers stuff. Because uh, sometimes Origen and Irenaeus get thrown around quite a bit. And uh, I don't know who knows what those mean, right? I don't know. That's what this is for. So we'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you my usual cursory overview of uh, the timeline and you know some tidbits about those guys and what they wrote about. Uh, but for right now, suffice it to say, they are all unanimous that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark and it was Peter's gospel. It was the story that Peter knew and told, having been there witnessing the ministry of Christ firsthand. And uh, there's a, a fun, odd little anecdote when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and the apostles all scatter. And then out of nowhere, there's this unnamed character who was apparently out late that night, wrapped in nothing but a bed sheet, like spying on the apostles or something. And then the soldiers go to arrest Jesus and one of the soldiers winds up chasing this guy off and trying to grab him and winds up grabbing the bed sheet and the guy runs home naked. Out of nowhere, unnamed guy just shows up and does some stuff. And so the it's generally assumed that this is Mark sharing an anecdote that actually happened. 
in this one, the apostles are, are constantly wrong, putting their foot in their mouth. It's it's Peter to a T, but as you read all the other Gospels, Peter, Peter puts his foot in it quite a bit. But he's the first one to act out uh, and speak up. He's the only one who jumps out of the boat to walk on water, so he's a good dude. It's all about strength and weaknesses. Uh, being good at being impulsive as the, the negative of being impulsive. What are you going to do? So that's uh, basically the history of it. Secular scholars like to think it was really late because there's a reference to stuff. I'll, I'll dive into a little more detail uh, later about 70 AD and fall of Jerusalem or whatever. So let's jump into the overview. Unlike the other Gospels, this one does not start with Jesus' birth at uh, under the star with the wise men and everything. This one jumps right into John the Baptist. Cuts past all that stuff and says, now John the Baptist was teaching. Gives some cliff notes on John the Baptist, what that guy was about. Ran around baptizing people in the desert. He's a cool dude. And uh, it's he's significant because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about Elijah. And he gets brought up later on in the book of Mark. That uh, Elijah was known for running around, dressed in camel's hair. Hung out in the desert a lot. And there was a prophecy that he would return right before the Messiah did. And now you got John the Baptist wandering around in the desert, wearing camel's hair. Uh, nobody's listening to him. It's straight up Elijah. And so there's the this question is asked, you know, Jesus, are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? What's going on? And he says, no, Elijah was already here and you guys killed him. Because at that time, John the Baptist had already been beheaded in the narrative. So it's he's significant. And so they... Uh, Peter sets that up. Mark writing uh, for Peter sets that up. And we've got no idea if it was Mark writing what he had learned from Peter or if Mark was was dictating. There's a thing called an emanuensis, and it's just the fancy word for the guy that was basically a typewriter. They didn't have typewriters back then. Few people knew how to read back then. Few people knew how to write back then. So if you were one of the rare people that knew how to read and write, you were still not good enough. You had to be one of the rare people that could read, write, and had good penmanship to be able to write stuff. It's hard to see these dim streetlights in the sun. Oh, well. That's what the people are there for, to honk at me. Going with it! So John the Baptist is preaching, and we get about a chapter or so of that, and Jesus shows up. Starts right at the baptism of Jesus, and it doesn't give many details outside of he went to the desert and was tempted by Satan. And that's all the detail we get. And then, oh, and it says angels came and ministered to him after. Which is, is also in the uh, one of the other Gospels as well. Jesus is comes right back out of the desert and gets right to teaching. And preaching, and none of that's recorded. It's not as recorded as much. It's not as emphasized as much. In Mark, Mark is very focused on the miracles and the works and the things that Jesus did. All of the uh, the different miracles and stuff that he performed. It zeroed in on, on that. So it, it includes some of his teachings and some of his parables, but not as many 
as Matthew does. Matthew starts right out and shows his teaching, and it's one of the things that gives it this Jewish uh, flair, is it really shows you Jesus the rabbi in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, where it's he's sitting down, he's teaching, he's explaining the, the law to people, and in Mark, he's focusing more on on signs and wonders and talking with with people and uh, casting out demons and stuff. It's just a different emphasis, right? If you wake up in the morning and you go to the bathroom and then you go to the you eat breakfast and then you go to the store, I can tell an honest narrative of your day if I say you woke up and went to the store. Or I can say you woke up and went to the bathroom. Or you woke up and then went to the bathroom and then ate. Those are all accurate portrayals of your day. It's just, what am I focusing on? What information did I share? So that's why the Gospels don't seem to line up or don't seem to match. And, oh, how could they be? Humans live long and complicated lives. How many times did Jesus sit and teach and preach and tell people? There was no YouTube. He had to repeat himself over and over again. You know, people couldn't download the podcast later on. It was uh, live performances only. That's why he traveled around a bunch, going from, from town to town. And staying there multiple days, saying the same thing over and over again to different crowds of people each day. Some people would hear him the first day and they'd go, hey! And they'd get their friends and go, hey, you gotta listen to this guy. And that's that's the way it's done, without internets. And so it's uh, it focuses a great deal on miracles. The few parables it does have, it's pretty cool because it, uh, it has the apostles right after ask Jesus, what are you talking about? I don't understand. And he breaks down a couple of the parables in the uh, in the book. And uh, it moves really quickly as it's going through the, the life of Jesus. And then it suddenly hits. He turns around and heads to Jerusalem for the last time. And the narrative slows down and really focuses in on that, that, uh, that time. As he's getting closer, he's challenging the Pharisees more. He's getting challenged by lawyers and stuff. And so when he comes into Jerusalem, he rolls up on into J-Town for Passover. It's, uh, it's a big deal because he comes into town riding a donkey, which had never been ridden by anyone before, which is a part of an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And uh, he started pushing that, the, um, that he was God more and more in his preaching as he got closer. And the people in charge starting to get afraid of losing their, their grip on power, start pushing back. And uh, they they keep butting heads, they're embarrassing him in the temple, because he, he came in the temple, started flipping tables over, saying, what's all this nonsense? Like He, he came into town, and that first day goes straight to the temple for Passover, and then starts flipping tables over. They were gouging people. So what they would do, one of the common... Uh, filthy practices they would do is somebody would bring their sheep and the priests have to inspect it. And they'll inspect the sheep that you brought to sacrifice. It can't have any blemishes on it. And they would go, oh, see that there? That thing that's not a... That's a blemish. Sorry, your sheep's not good enough. Here, you can buy one of ours. We have ones that are already good. So you sell us that sheep and we'll we'll give you uh, this sheep. We'll let you buy this sheep from us. And so they would they would gouge people like that. And you're like, oh, this sheep's no good. So they'd buy it from them on the on the cheap, 
because they were pressed for time and they're in a hurry and they wanted to worship God. And they're like, look, I just need a sacrifice, guys. This, it was fine. The sheep is the best one I have. Fine. I'll buy one of your sheep. So they wind up getting less than the sheep is worth that they sold and then still having to buy a new sheep from these guys who would then turn right around to the next person, not customer, but person there to worship the Lord and sell that guy's sheep to the next guy. It was fine. It was perfectly fine. They would find something to, oh, no, it's not good enough. And they would, uh, they'd, they'd give him the runaround. They'd make him buy one of their she- overpriced sheep. They'd buy the, the sheep for him on, on the low and then turn around and sell him that sheep to the next person. And that's, that's how they ran. So that's the kind of stuff going on when Jesus comes in and flips over the tables of the money changers. Because the money changers also, if they don't have uh, fair weights, would mess you up. You can't just swipe a credit card. You come in with, you know, some Galilean half dollars. Oh, you need uh, Jerusalem. We only honor such and such currency. So you're having to weigh out how much gold is in these coins to get the, the right coin that's accepted by whatever so you can give an offering. And, you know, put the thumb on the scale or use un- dishonest weights. All kinds of shady stuff going on. So he pushes them, they push back, and eventually they crucify him. He dies, gets buried, comes back to life. Spoiler alert, I should have I said that beforehand. He doesn't stay dead. He dies, spoiler alert. Uh, also, he doesn't stay dead. Uh, also, spoiler alert. Plot twist! And uh, the, the last chapter, one of the things that make the Gospels unique is that women are the first ones in uh, most of them. It, it records where women are the, the first ones to find Jesus risen from the dead. And then they go and tell Peter and John, who become the, the second, to, to go see it. And it just it sticks out as, as being interesting. Uh, usually there's this uh, focus on how marginalized women were by the, the patriarchy back in the day. Uh, they're the first ones to find Jesus. There are specific mentions in... I forget which one. I think it's John. No, it was in Luke, I think. But there's a, there's a group of women that actually supported Jesus' ministry pretty consistently that um, followed and, and listened to his teachings. Um, Mary and Martha are constantly doing cool stuff. It's It makes no sense. It's That, that stance is completely devoid of reality. Um, so there's a whole chapter on Jesus just being back from the dead and everybody going to see him. And so let's get into some of the odd odd bits or things that stick out across the gospel. One thing I will point out is Thomas, the, the Apostle Thomas, gets a bad rap. Uh, everybody goes, oh, he's doubting Thomas, because all the other apostles said, yeah, they, Jesus came back from the dead, and you know, Jesus shows up and goes, Thomas, why do you doubt? Uh, they all doubted, every single one of them. Mary and uh, whatever other ladies find the tomb empty, go and tell Peter and John, and the first thing they say is, Nah, I want to see it myself. And they run down to the tomb. Not a single one of them didn't doubt initially and say, No, that's crazy. I mean, if somebody was verifiably dead, you saw them nailed to a cross, and they were so dead, Roman soldiers that literally murder people for a living on sticks decided, Oh yeah, this guy's, this guy's a corpse. You know, they, these are professional corpse makers. They're like, yeah, that guy's dead. And they, they let him get buried. You you know he's dead. And then everybody says, no, he's, he's coming around. I, I saw him. The, the tomb's empty. 
you, you're going to be skeptical. Anybody would be. <clears throat> so it's, it's just natural, and I, everybody dumps on Thomas. But, but he, he did the same thing that all of the rest did, and the, you know, you believe because you have seen, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Yeah, that doesn't apply to anyone in that room. They all believe because they saw it. That's talking about us. It's not something that just Thomas missed out on. But uh, I think I think that moment was actually funny for for everybody. That like everybody else had had the exact same reaction. Thomas was the guy that Jesus walks in the room, and you know he was like, "I I'm not unless I see the wounds and I put my hand in them." Why is everybody quiet? He's behind me, isn't he? Like that that moment. Ah, man. I, keep, I wish I could have been in the room just to like see the look on his face for the he's he's behind me isn't he moment. I don't know I don't know how you say that in Greek or Aramaic or whatever. <clears throat> so he ends the gospel with I'm coming back, go get to work. Uh tell people. Uh issues with the gospel or things people like to bicker and argue about, of course, is the date, as I mentioned earlier. So uh secular scholars are godless atheists who don't believe in anything that they're reading. So I don't care what they have to think or say about a religious text. Uh, but they, they make a big fuss about, in the middle of, what, what preaching it does cover explicitly predicts the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Pardon me. It doesn't say Romans will show up in siege of the city. It's veiled language. But when you learn about the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it's something that's worth a little Wikipedia rabbit hole to go down. Um, all the Bible stuff they're godless atheists uh, scholarship on. But for uh, for historical stuff, they're pretty okay. And uh, just to, to look at like the strategies, like the Romans were hardcore on this is this is not going to happen again. They built a wall, not around the city but around, across the field, the battlefield, around the entire city. They built a giant fence wall so nobody could come in or out. No, no, that's right. They let people into the city. They're like, yeah, sure, come on, guys. And then they just wouldn't let you back out. You were stuck there. That way it would deplete the resources inside of the city faster. People had nothing to do with the siege. They were like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Chumps. So the the warning Jesus gives, you know, don't don't turn back, don't. Yeah, if you, when the the day happens, run. Don't if you're in the field or whatever. Don't even go back to your house to get a cloak. Just just run. Get out. Get away. And you know, Jesus is not the Son of God and can't predict the future. Ergo, Mark has to be after 70 A.D. And then they bicker about how far after. Or maybe he was just smart and saw it coming. You know, you can read the handwriting on the wall about five, ten years out sometimes of uh, news. Stuff. If you're clued in, if you're watching, what's going on? Um, you know, you can predict big sweeps of like, yeah, these Jews are going to get crazy, and the Romans are going to put them down hard because that's the way they do everything. Uh, but so that's that's they they argue about that weird nonsense. It's it's irrelevant because their only evidence, their only footing for that is the assumption that Jesus is not the Son of God and cannot see the future. So I don't care what they have to say. That's not a convincing argument for me, because it's made by a bunch of godless heathens. Irrelevant. 
Uh, the, one of the other things, you got the Q document, and uh, Mark is the earliest because it's the shortest, and then we see all of the other stuff develop over time, and, you know, they don't really know what they believe early on. It, they, they were always, the whole time, believed that they were following Jesus, who is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So you go from Second Temple Judaism, oh, our Messiah is here, we don't need to do any of that stuff anymore, and uh, follow Messiah and tell people about him. Bam. Done. That's it. Uh, but they, you know, they have to believe that it evolved over time so they can sleep at night and continue living their lives without any sort of uh, authority or you know, a need to answer for what they've done. They'll, they'll figure it out the hard way. So it's, um, it's always mentioned as being a very Roman gospel. It's very fast-paced. There's a Greek phrase, um, eudeme? I forget what it is, but it just means immediately. Or right now, then suddenly. As you're reading it, almost any translation is going to be, and suddenly it happened, or oh, immediately they went away to, oh, and then what's next? It's, it's, that, it's that idea as you carry the narrative through. It's like, suddenly Jesus was doing this, and then he went over there and did this thing, and all of a sudden he was doing this one thing, and it's right away he went to... It's, it's really, really fast-paced, really quick. I, I often, um, I will recommend Mark as the, if, if you don't know where to start in the Bible and you, you don't know a lot of stuff about it and you're, you're trying to learn the story of Jesus, Mark is an excellent start because it's, it's short, it's focused, and it gives you the whole story with all the important bits um, in, a, in a good condensed format. It's only 16 chapters compared to Luke, which is like 40-something. Uh, I think John has like 40-odd chapters. Matthew has like 37. Mark is short, man. Mark is real short. I don't know, height-wise, I don't know. He, he might have used lifts. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, 70 AD. Oh, so the one of the other things that shows up in Mark, this will be the last thing that I reference, is uh, it's kind of a weird bit. So Jesus is, is giving his great commission. And at the very end, so this verse is contested and not well represented in all the manuscripts. It is in the received text that the church had for, you know, a thousand years before digging up the Masoretic text and, uh, you know, doing some of the modern Greek scholarship and finding some of the older documents uh, much, much earlier than that when we start moving from the Texas Receptus to the morphological Greek New Testament, which is the current modern one, all the stuff is... Um, so you see an asterisk or footnote next to this verse in uh, a bunch of other, in a, a lot of the Bible translations, there'll, there'll be a footnote for the last two or three verses or something in the book, uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, it might be the whole section. It's been a little bit since I've looked at it. Anyway, it, it has to do with handling snakes. This is where the snake handlers get it from, is those who... Uh, believe on me and uh, preach my name, they will go and do, and he, he gives a list of very specific miracles of speaking in new tongues and handling snakes, and they'll get bitten and not die, and he, he lists several miracles that you see some of the apostles do much later on, right? The Acts chapter 2, all the apostles roll up out of the, the room after the Holy Spirit falls up the, out of the upper room, preaching in languages they never knew before. Uh, Paul specifically in Acts gets uh, bitten by a snake after a shipwreck. It was, it was a bad day for him. He got through it all right. Oh no, my microphone fell. Microphone fell down. 
Paul had a bad day after a shipwreck. He gets bit by a snake putting firewood together, and he just shakes it off into the fire, no problem. Now, there were locals nearby who saw the snake, knew it was a poisonous snake, and Paul's just like, what's wrong, guys? I'm fine. No problem. Uh... There are people that read that verse and go, well, now we have to handle snakes to be good Christians. And they they handle snakes as a part of their worship service that are all kinds of venomous snakes, but they milk them, which makes the venom weak also. And uh, it just ignores the whole do not put the Lord your God to the test thing. It's one thing if you're in the middle of, you know, for, for Paul, he was in chains for the gospel. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. And on his way to Rome to go before Caesar. And he got bit by a snake. Oh, God's got a mission for him. That snake's no problem. It's different than, well, like, time to go to church on Sunday. And we just got done singing How Great Thou Art. Time to juggle rattlers. No, that's not, that's not at all what that verse means or has to do with. Whenever there's a miracle, there's a purpose. Either... Satanic forces were trying to thwart you from accomplishing God's will. And that work is undone. Or there was a a message to credential where somebody was performing a miracle. And uh, Jesus, in the, uh, there's a lame guy at one point. Jesus is teaching in a house and it's stuffed full of people. And there's a lame guy who can't get in. And his four buddies are carrying him around and they put him up on top of the roof, dig a hole in the roof, because the house is made of dirt, and lower this guy down through the hole in front of Jesus to get healed. The first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith, he looked at the guy and said, your sins are forgiven. Everybody, he waited for the weird, awkward silence. He knew what they were thinking. They're, oh yeah, who are you to forgive sins? What's, what's the deal, man? Need sacrifices and stuff for that. And Jesus says, Only God can forgive sins to prove to you that the Son. No, that's what he says, which is that's what they thought was only God forgives sins. He said, Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? So he intentionally makes the point it's harder, it, there's more theologically to it to forgive sins than to just fix somebody's legs. And he, you know, Long pause, but so you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Then he looks at the guy and says, rise up, take your mat, and walk. Good stuff. So it's the, the miracle has a purpose, right? It credentialed the fact that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. It's a big deal. So the the snake handlers, it's uh, it's just not... It's not the way miracles are done in the Bible. They're not done so you can practice doing them. They're done for a purpose in the right time in the the right place to credential your message or to undo the plans of the enemy. Uh, some fun miracles that happen in like the lives of saints and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know how reliable it is, but you know the it was not uncommon for bishops when they were preaching to Vikings. The the Vikings would have a tree to Odin outside of the city that they worshipped at. They worshipped trees. It was was the one, the Odin tree in the town. And it was not uncommon for bishops. The first thing they did, showing up to a town to, let's be missionaries, like, hey, here's your pagan deity tree, right? Anybody who touches it dies, right? Cool. They would chop it down. And they'd wait. 
And I go, all right, I'm fine, because my God's real, your God isn't. And then they'd start preaching. And so you get to the point where some of them were arrogantly, they'd cut the tree down, stand in the way of the falling tree, and like make the sign of the cross, and the tree would move at the last minute and not hit them. Uh, but once again, even, I don't know how historically accurate that is, some would say not at all, but the only reason that you say it's not accurate at all is there's a supernatural element to that hagiography, which means a, a biography of a, a saint, uh, from the, the Greek word hagios for, for holy, one set apart, holy ones, as, as a word. So anyway, for the, the stories about saints and stuff, they date back to the time, some of them are, are pretty early. And they have miracles written down in them that they did. It, it follows every note of a gospel. Nobody agrees that they're inspired. But the only footing for saying these miracles never happened is, oh, they're miracles written in. And it, it strikes me as disingenuous to change how you read. If, the, if you read the Bible as Jesus' miracles actually happened, to look at the hagiographies and go, oh, nah, they didn't actually do miracles because miracles don't happen. But Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he didn't, you don't have anything. You're just reading a, a good storybook. What's the deal, bro? Uh, so anyway, uh, and then there's, I'll throw this one last thing out, but I'm not going to deal with it right now. Baptism. It says, as Jesus is leaving, um, he says, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. And those who do not believe will uh, be destroyed or will die or will perish or something like that. Um, but those who believe and are, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Baptism is very important. How important and why is, uh, there's not a lot of agreement on. And the division can be stark because you're dealing with, well, who is and is not a Christian. And uh, that conversation always needs to be had in, in Christian love with a desire to seek the truth on both sides. Uh, which I've always strived to do. And uh, I come down on the side that it's more necessary uh, than not... I also come down on the side of it's not my job to tell you whether you are or not a Christian, simply to present the truth of Scripture and go, this is how I read it, because these are the words that are there. And then, you know, we, we can discuss and have that. So, uh, that discussion is going to be for another day, though. Uh, but read it, ponder, and uh, always move fearfully, seeking the will of God. Fearfully in the reverence and respect, not like, oh, he's going to strike me with lightning. That's the whole point of Jesus, is you're, there's forgiveness, and you just need to move with a sense of reverence and respect. It's like using a power tool, right? You have to respect what a chainsaw can do in order to use one correctly and effectively. Lumberjacks aren't afraid of chainsaws, uh, but they don't play with them. They're not toys. They're very serious because they're capable of powerful, fearful things. So, uh, tangent. That's, that's it. Uh, I love you guys in Christ. Uh, don't take my word for it. I will see you next time. Godspeed.